Good morning, everybody. Thank you for giving me the privilege of being here with you once again. Thank you for your welcome this morning. We really appreciate that. You're a, you're a dear group of people. And God loves you, and so do I. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we're so grateful for who you are and for what you have done in our lives and for the prospect we have in the future of being forever with you. Lord, we understand that in small measure, but uh, we know that eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And so, Lord, we're very grateful. Lord, uh, bless the words of my mouth this morning. And from the scriptures that we read, may your name be glorified and exalted. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to uh, Psalm 2? And while I read this psalm, I would like for you to remember the news that you have seen these past couple of weeks. I think this particular psalm tells us how relevant and how up-to-date our Bible really is. Uh, you know, our passage for today introduces us to real people. Their hopes and their struggles and their faith and their questions their perplexity, their vanity. In Psalm 2, the writer asks a number of things. A number of things that are going on in our world that made him think. That made him want to ask questions and to search for the answers. And so this morning, let's read together Psalm 2. That begins with that intriguing word, why? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. 
How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, This particular psalm is divided into three parts, three sections. We have questions in verse 1, at least two big questions. And we have some answers in verses 2 to 9, and then we have the application in verses 10 to 12. And I'd like to look at those three sections in our word that we read as we look at ourselves. Verse 1 begins with that three-letter word, why. Why do the nations rage? Why are the nations in an uproar? Why is there perplexity in the White House and all the other capitals of the world? Why? We're told that the deepest questions in life begin with that three-letter word, why? 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 Why do the heathen rage? And the word rage has the connotation of of a raging ocean, always in turmoil. So the question is, why is there so much international conflict in our world? And I believe every thinking Christian is going to ask himself that question. Is there any question in your mind that the nations are in an uproar? Why is there so much trouble? We all know about the uproar that's in Iraq, Iran, North Korea, Afghanistan, Zimbabwe, the Gaza Strip, Israel, Lebanon, Chechnya, Cuba, Venezuela, Honduras, Egypt, Libya, the Middle East, Somalia, and on and on it goes. Will peace ever come to this world? Why can't people get along? Why does this world seem like it's falling apart? Are any of you surprised? And before the psalmist answers this first question, why, he asks a second, perhaps even more penetrating than the first one. Look at verse 1 again. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the second question is, why are the peoples devising a vain thing? And when the Bible talks about vanity, it is not referring to the amount of time that we spend in front of a mirror trying to make up for the wrinkles and the white hairs and the thinning hair and the regular use of Botox. (laughs) And when the Bible speaks about vanities, it means emptiness. It means confusion. It means futility. Why are so many people into empty living? And the question is, Why are there so many empty lives in our world? Why are there so many wandering people? People that don't know where they're going. I still remember that bumper sticker that said, don't follow me, I'm lost too. (laughs) When a person searches, searching is fruitless, vain or empty, 
This increases the frustration and the search continues in areas that feel bizarre and hopeless. Plotting or devising a vain thing. Let me give you a few of the vain things. I refer to the search in horoscopes, which are 100% nonsense. There's the search in sexual experience of all kinds. There's the search in trial marriages. There's the search in, get this, creative divorce. There's the search in wandering here and there. There's the search in drugs and alcohol. There's the search for bigger and better weapons of mass destruction. And the psalmist was looking at his world and he saw confusion and turmoil and emptiness and lostness. And he cries out, why? Are some of you asking why? Or have you given up asking? Or have you become indifferent? Now, these are two huge questions. And I don't intend to insult your intelligence by giving you simplistic answers. I want to give you some responses from the Word of God. I want us to look at this psalm carefully and how the Scripture responds. This is an amazing psalm. Amazing passage. Let's now look at some of the answers. And the psalmist responds to these two why questions in a threefold way. First, he answers it from the point of view of the non-Christian. Notice what he says. This is a response of the secular, secularist world. It is the response of an elitist culture. It's a response that a non-believer would give. Verse 2. The king's the rulers, the big shots of this world take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. There's a summit conference here. Did you notice that? Did you notice that in verse 2 where it says, The rulers take counsel together. There's a summit conference of the kings or the rulers or the trendsetters of our world, the talk show hosts and the psychologists and many in government and many in our courts. And they're all influencers in our day and in our age. And what are they doing? They're against the Lord. And against his anointed. They're just plain against. The word anointed is the word for Christ. And Psalm 4 tells us that so very, very clearly in so many words. These people are probably against the Lord because the very word Lord means an authority. It means a sovereignty. That God is boss. And why are people so upset with the word Lord? Because it represents an appeal 
a word that people don't want to hear. They want to please themselves. So the word Lord, you got to throw that out. Just plain throw it out. They want to be masters of their own destiny. The second thing that they decide at the summit conference is they will no longer consider any of the biblical restraints as helpful or valid. When you read the rest of that verse there, you know what fetters are. And you know what cords are. Chains here that are designed to hold you back. Cords that are designed to restrain someone or something. When the Bible says, you shall have no other gods before me, or you shall not commit adultery, the response in verse 3 is that these words are like chains and never to be gotten rid of. And need to be getting rid of. The call is get rid of the chains. Get rid of biblical morality. Want freedom of choice of anything. They want no restrictions. Actually, I don't think of these necessarily as restrictions, but rather as guides. That's why there's an uproar and a vanity. People are trying to live as if God did not exist. And folks, he does exist. And that simply doesn't work. You remember perhaps the Supreme Court had ruled in that Kentucky could not post the Ten Commandments in the schools. And uh, they had some great reasoning for why they didn't want these Ten Commandments posted in the schools. And the reason was this, and this is a quote, quote, lest students looking on these day by day might be moved to obey them. Close quotes. Get rid of the chains. Don't want... Anyone telling them what they ought to do. Let's tear apart the feathers. Fetters is really a call to anarchy. Which says no to God and no to his words. To say no to God is to fail to understand that the Lord seeks our highest good. Rather than being a person who wants to take the fun out of life. And the answer of the non-Christian world to the why of verse 1 is to get rid of God. To get rid of the principles and standards of the Word of God. And uh, does this sound familiar in today's world? The second answer, that was the first answer. Get rid of God. Get rid of the fetters. The second answer to these why questions comes from God Himself seated on the throne. And I want you to notice the perspective of heaven in verse 4. What is God doing in heaven? Strange thing. He's laughing. He's laughing. Now, I want to correct a possible misunderstanding here. God never laughs at the pitiful 
miserable conditions of people. He's not entertained by the horror stories of our time and, and age. He doesn't laugh at the victims of fire and earthquake. When God, what God laughs at are the ludicrous thoughts and boasting of men. I think God laughed when the Russian astronauts returned from space and said they looked all around and didn't see God. And I think God laughed. How pathetic. Their conclusion was when they looked around and couldn't find God, that must be because there is no God. And he laughs at the pathetic attempts to explain the origins of man that he evolved from a monkey. And man has a proven incompetence in terms of his relationships with others. And yet here is a man still trying to manage his affairs without God. Every war that we have, every upset in international relationships tells me that there is an incompetence on the part of man. And the incompetence comes primarily because they fail to acknowledge God on his throne. Fortunately, God does not sit on his throne in heaven seething in silence with a red face. He is not a God out of control. God first laughs and then he speaks with righteous anger. Did you notice that in verse 5? Yes, God is angry with sin. God is angry with rebellion. God is angry with the horrible history that man has compiled. It is unthinkable that God would not purely and perfectly be angry with sin. If God were not angry with sin, we would reject him as not being a God of justice. Notice what he says in verse 6. Now, there's a contrast. I want you to notice this great contrast between the kings of verse 2 and the king of verse 6. They're different. There's a big principle here. The kings in verse 2 have exalted themselves. They think they're somebody. The king in verse 6 is exalted by God himself. And there's a big principle here. Self-exalted men are going to be abased. They're going to be lowered. They're going to be put down. But the one who humbled himself, even to death on the cross... He's going to be exalted and lifted up on high. And the New Testament identifies this king 
as the risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. The third answer to the why question comes from God's newly installed king in verses 7 to 9. First, want to notice verse 7. And here we have described a unique relationship of the anointed one, the Christ, with God the Father. And I want to particularly emphasize this point. This verse describes the closest possible relationship. That is, the relationship as of a father with a son. And then in verses 8 and 9, we are given a prophetic perspective. There will not always be chaos and turmoil and vanity. We're told that the people's rebellion will be put down. And God at some point is going to say, enough. Enough is enough. He will say, I've given you every opportunity to change. And at some point, the uproar and the vanity will respond either voluntarily or they will have to submit to the iron scepter. Now, that's freedom of choice. Either submit to the iron scepter or change your ways. In closing, we have three statements of instruction that give us help in what what we should do today. We've heard briefly from both sides. And how are you and I going to respond? Verse 10. tells us how we ought to respond. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Show discernment. In other words, wise up and live. The psalmist who started by asking questions concludes by giving instructions. Start thinking seriously about God's role in your life. Take time to consider why Jesus came to this world. Notice that people who live without God are not happy. They're angry people, restless people, lost, empty people. People without God. And it's obvious things are not okay in the affairs of men. And the greatest reason is because God and the Lord Jesus Christ are left out. They're neglected. His commandments are largely ignored. And so the exhortation is be wise. Show discernment. Show some understanding. Consider the message of the book. Second thing, first, be wise. Secondly, worship the Lord or serve the Lord. Now, to serve or worship the Lord implies 
that a radical change is necessary. From uproar and vanity to worship is a kind of upside-down change. But that's what's important. If there is going to be a change in the affairs of men, there must be a change of heart toward the Lord. And that that change comes only when men submit to the claims of God in their lives and on their lives. It comes about when men stop serving and worshiping self and by an act of faith acknowledge Jesus as Lord. There used to be the saying, if Caesar is Lord, Jesus is not. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord. When Jesus is Lord in one's life, the natural response is service and worship. A submission. A third exhortation. And here's the command do homage to the Son, or literally, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. This is an un, a rather unusual kind of statement, particularly to the 21st century mind. A kiss is an expression of love, an expression of surrender to the affections of another. It's an act of submission. Can you imagine the person who has rebelled? The person in turmoil? The person who was at the summit conference and who said, I'm going to throw off every shred that has to do with God? Can you imagine this person coming to a pledge of love and loyalty and submission to God, that's a radical change. That's the kind of change that we present to you this morning. To do homage to the Son. To kiss the Son. To submit to the Son. To acknowledge who is who He is in your life. Is He Lord? Is he Lord? God loves us so very much. And our response to him ought to be love in return. Someone has said that the greatest sin of all is to reject the love of God. And the book of Hosea particularly, and of course others in the Bible, would seem to bear that out. The greatest sin is to reject God loving you. Do you all know that God loves you and is looking for you to love Him in return? We indicate that we love God when we accept what He has done for us. We love Him when we say, thank you. And bow the knee before Him. We love Him when we are submissive to Him and serve and worship Him. Searching for answers. The answers are not found in a rebellious attitude toward God. 
The answers to the deepest questions in life and relationship are found per that last line in Psalm 2. Look at that. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed we are. If that's where we look for our security, rather than the strength of a big army, we take refuge in him. Would you like to be happy in an otherwise world of strife, confusing questions, and turmoil? Again, how blessed. The word blessed is the word Greek word makarios. And uh, it, it comes from uh, the idea of the, the Greek gods up there in heaven having a party. And they're just having a good time up there somewhere. Uh, that's the word makarios. It has that as its background to it, that word. So here we have how blessed. You can translate that word happy. How happy are all who take refuge in him. Would you like to take refuge in him? Even this morning, maybe there's someone here who says, yeah, I understand that uh, there's a, a trouble in Egypt and Tunisia and uh, Libya and all these other nations and that uh, Iran is getting a bigger and firmer and stronger foothold in the Middle East and maybe the caliphate is just around the corner. That is the rule of Islam. This morning is a good time to say to Lord, Lord, I come to you. I will take refuge in you. You are the only safe hiding place that there is. I know of no other. And I would like to do that this morning. If you would bow your heads and just ask the Lord personally, Lord, I would like to come to you this, today, this morning. I would like to acknowledge you as Lord. Lord, I, I need you. The uh, rulers of this world don't really have the answers. But you do. And so, Father, I come to you. If you have said that in your heart, would you raise your hand? Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may those who have raised their hands find happiness, real happiness, the happiness of belonging to God and becoming one of his children. So, Lord, we, we come to you now in, in prayer. And we say thank you, Lord, for your presence with us today. We thank you, Lord, that uh, notwithstanding a troubled world, yet we can have peace, peace with you, peace with God. And Lord, we 
Thank you for the joy that it will be ours when you call us to be home with you. Again, Lord, bless this congregation of your people here. May they find their joy and refuge in you. Dismiss us with your blessing now, for we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.